0: Welcome to Catacomb Theology, a podcast exploring all manners of Christianity as it relates to the church and world of today, as well as how it is related to the church and world of the past. Hi everyone, it's great to see you all. I'm your host, Jane Castile, and I first just wanted to apologize for the long uh, break that we have. We, my family and I, have been moving and going through a lot of different ordeals in the past month. And so it's been been—it's been a little bit of a, of a rough month, hence the reason why uh, the account and um, the podcast has not had as many updates as of late, but we think that we're finally getting through it, and we're finally able to go back to our regular scheduling, so um, if not this coming week, then next week the scheduling should be back to normal. Um, we should be able to get stuff out to you guys at, a, at the usual pace. However, today we have a bit of a treat. We have an interview that I did with one of our writers, Josiah Suarez, on the topic of falling from grace. Um, it is from a Lutheran perspective, however, the Lutheran perspective happens to also be an Anglican perspective, at least as far as my research is concerned. Knowledge as to the alternative, please let me know. But however, I believe it's the exact same thing. So it was a very great conversation, really interesting um, hearing his perspective and his answers to a lot of evangelical rebuttals to um, the concept of falling So without any further ado, here we have Josiah Suarez and the topic of falling grace. Josiah, how are you doing? I'm doing well. All right, perfect. Uh, Let's see. All right, and it is Josiah, right? I just want to make sure I'm saying that right. Yeah, it's Josiah. All right, perfect. All right, well, I'm going to not waste your time and get started. Um, But... I just want to say uh, welcome again. Thank you for coming on. Um having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, I was actually going to ask you if you could, before you, before we start, if you could kind of introduce yourself um, however you would like to, but just kind of tell, just so people know who you are and everything.
1: OK. So my name is Josiah Swales. Um, my alias is halfway underscore papist on Instagram, but I'm a Lutheran, confessional Lutheran. Um, I was confirmed this Easter Vigil, which is just the day before Easter, um, in an LCMS church. I go to church in Boston, um, but yeah, I'm I'm very excited to you know kind of get out into the public space, um, you know Lutheran distinctives really. I mean, I've been doing that on my Instagram a lot um, because I feel like <clears throat> a lot of Lutheranism is just, like, obscure to the American mind, really. Um, same with, like, Anglicanism as well. I mean, I didn't really know much about Anglicans before I started, you know, interacting with them more and getting their side of the story. Um, so it's good to have, kind of have, like, a platform to be able to talk about these things. Um Yeah, I mean, by myself, I was, I grew up Baptist, I say Baptist very loosely, it was like, it was non-denominational, but they're all Baptists, really, Um, yeah, I was baptized at 13, and eventually was led into looking into Lutheranism about two years ago, finally made the, made the leap about a year ago, and that's where we are today. Okay. Well, well, at
0: least you got there, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, but it wasn't. It wasn't after a lot of kicking and screaming. I would say, I, mm-hmm. I really did not want to be Lutheran, especially coming from like a non-denominational background. Hearing things about like baptismal regeneration, the sacraments—that's so foreign. I just did not want to accept it. But eventually, I was beaten down enough hmm
0: yeah okay well now that well i mean it's it's a good thing because now i can ask you questions about lutheranism so people know exactly what it is (laughs) so today we're going to be touching on uh, the concept of grace because i honestly feel like that's one of the most uh, at least when i like converted from Baptists to Anglican, I think it was probably baptism and regeneration and falling from grace and then infant baptism that were probably like the like biggest um obstacles, especially yeah. the grace ones, since I think again I think the US is very Protestant, not Protestant, I'm um, Puritan, because of the Puritan. Yeah, I mean,
1: the US directly comes from you know a Calvinistic tradition.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is a very know sacrilegious to many people the concept of falling away so with the start so the first question is so according to scripture lutheran lutherans as a whole can a christian um fall from grace
1: all right so that that language fall from grace is it is used in scripture Uh, i mean Obviously, I'm going to say that scripture, Lutherans and Luther all agree that, you know, you can fall from grace, but I feel like in order to understand it correctly, because a lot of, a lot of the people who come and criticize it, they use, they use language like, oh, so God can save you, but then you lose your salvation, right? They use that kind of like losing, losing salvation kind of language, which is like, when you think about it like that, no, like no Lutheran or Anglican or anyone who believes that you can fall from grace thinks that, you know, you woke up one day and you were saved and then, oh, I misplaced my salvation. I lost it. I don't know where it is. Like, what happened? Right. It's right. it's never been anything like that. Um, <clears throat> but Lutherans believe. More in a willful apostasy, right? We use that word apostasy. Um, and we find that word in scripture, uh, the Greek word is apostasia, which means to forsake or to fall away, right? And we look at that that term forsake, right? The word, even the word itself denotes that true apostasy is at the fault of, it's at the fault of man, right? God is never the one to blame for anyone's apostasy or turning away or forsaking God. It's always putting the blame on the individual, on man. So it's man forsaking God, not God forsaking man. And, you know, the reform kind of have an idea of this. They'll say, you know, there's quote unquote apostasy in the visible church, which means they weren't actually a part of the church. They just went to church. They did all the things that a Christian does and then they stopped doing those things, right? So they'll say say that they're Christians, but they weren't truly regenerate. They weren't truly elect. You know, they'll use that kind of language. But Lutherans believe in a true apostasy of the regenerate, right? So someone can have faith, be connected to Christ, and still fall away and turn away from God. And, you know, that's just not a, that's not just a Lutheran thing. This goes all the way back to Augustine, which... I don't know how the reformed handle that because Augustine's kind of the guy, you know. Augustine believed that, you know, the sacraments were objective, that when you are baptized you are regenerate and faith holds on to the promise of that baptism. But he would say, just like Lutherans would say, no, not all those who are regenerate will eventually be saved. Um so you can be unelect and still be regenerate. Um, but we will say that there is a sort of perseverance given to the elect. So, you know, the elect will persevere no matter what, but not all the elect, not all were regenerate or elect, basically, is where our distinction comes in. Um, but we see, <clears throat> we see the word apostasy, apostasia used in Second Thessalonians, Specifically, two, three, when Paul's you know speaking to the church, and he's saying before Christ returns, there will be a great apostasy. There will be a great falling away from faith. There will be a great turning, you know, from God and turning from repentance. Um, <clears throat> we also get a sense of how the word apostasy is used in Acts twenty-one when it's when we're told that Paul is instructing the Jews to apostasize from moses so he's saying turn away from moses and turn to christ for your salvation so we get this you have faith in one aspect and then apostasy means to turn denounce faith in that and turn to something else so that's kind of like i mean that kind of lays out the lutheran understanding that it's not just something that oh you got it and you sinned a little too much And now you turn a corner and you don't have your salvation anymore. No, it's a very willful thing that you reject. You reject the grace that is given to you. Um, Yeah, I mean, we can go into more scripture. Jesus specifically talks about in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, uh, seeds that fell on the rocky ground, right? When he's, even when he's giving, the um, the interpretation of the parable, he says that the seeds that fell on the rocky ground, they sprung up and they believed for a while, but then when persecutions came, they died out, right? They withered, they lost faith. So I, reading that, right, you, you're being told that there are some who have faith and faith is what joins us to Christ. Right, it's not just this random, ambiguous faith. Right, it's faith, faith that saves, but then eventually it dies out, and that's for, you know, more reasons than one. Um, we see in John fifteen, it talks about how Christ is the vine and we are the branches, and all those who do not produce fruit are cut off. Right, so those who are cut off are apostates, but they were truly joined to Christ, who is life. So you can't say that, you know, before they were cut off, they didn't have life, right? They they weren't engrafted into Christ. They weren't united to Christ. Those are specifically salvation terms. Mm. So these individuals are tied to Christ, but they prove to be fruitless and they're cut off. So, I mean, those are just, <clears throat> even in even in the words of Jesus, you have several parables that talk about that. Right. You have Jesus saying himself in Matthew 10, you'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, right? We get those warnings all over scripture saying those who persevere to the end, they'll be saved. You know, don't give up the race, continue, continue running in the race um, to, to constantly check, you know, what is, what are you believing in? Lest you believed in vain, which Paul says in First Corinthians 15, let me remind mm-hmm. you of the gospel of which you're being saved unless you believed in vain. Right. So we get those warnings all throughout scripture. And I mean, the most reasonable way to understand those warnings is that they're warning something that is dangerous. Right. The there's a there's a good analogy used. Um, that goes something like, you know, it would be absurd to see a sign that says, beware of cliffs in Kansas, right? Because Kansas is flat as a pancake. Now I'm sure there are cliffs somewhere, but Um, it's usually understood that there aren't any cliffs that you're gonna die in Kansas. So why would they have a sign in Kansas saying, beware of the cliff, if you can never fall off a cliff in the first place? So why would there be warnings in scripture not to forsake the faith, not to give up, to keep going, if there wasn't actually a real danger that was on the other side of that warning. It doesn't make any sense. Um, (laughs) There are also, yeah, I mean, we can even talk about the common texts that are used against this idea. I mean, I'm sure you've You've heard plenty of them, like John 10, um, where it says, you know, I have a sheep, you know, the sheep are placed into my hand and, you know, no one can, no one can take them out of my hand. No one can pluck the sheep from my hand. Hebrews 13, where God is saying, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, right? So those are the kind of the texts that people who believe that you're saved and once saved can never fall away from the faith use in order to sort of get that understanding. But I mean, Lutherans really have no problem affirming those texts, right? Because we'll say, yeah, God will never cast you out of his hand. He'll never forsake you or leave you. But those texts do not deny that a Christian has ability to forfeit grace. It's just saying that God will not, you know, remove it from you unwillingly. But you are able to forfeit and rend yourself out of his hand. Right? Which is mm-hmm. kind of to, to a reform that sounds like almost blasphemous because it's like, why? <laughs> you, you think God's that weak? You think he's that weak to let you go? Which I mean, that's kind of the problem is that whenever you suggest something like this to a reform, the first place they go is putting blame on God when the scriptures put the blame on the individual. So hmm. that's true.
0: Also, is my mic working or no?
1: Uh yeah. I think I just talked for a really long time. So
0: oh no, 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 you're fine. It just sounds like it was messing up on my end. So that's probably fine. But no, you're good. Um uh and yeah, I think that's 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 a really good summary. I did want to ask so just for um, specifics, when you say reformed, um, who are
1: you exactly uh, talking about? I mean, it covers a big group of people. I mean, the classical Presbyterians, um, particular Baptists, um, basically anyone who 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 would hold to you know a form of tulip, um, with that preservation of the saints but it also falls under non-reforms like non denominationals and Baptists who just, you know, spout out once saved, always saved. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I guess it covers a big, big canopy of people.
0: Okay, I got gotcha. you. Um, so the second, so the next question I have is, um, so does falling from grace imply that works are necessary for the sustenance of salvation. And does this kind of idea put it, the doctrine more in line with the Catholic idea of infusion rather than imputation?
1: Yeah. So, you know, so the question: does falling away from grace imply works are necessary for salvation and for sustaining faith? Obviously, as a Lutheran, I'm going to say no, not even, not even close. In no way does our works even sustain our faith. Um but one thing, one thing we have to think about is is how our works do sort of, you know, how do they fit into our salvation? Um, and that goes to I think first you have to answer the question. Well, we know that Scripture talks about you can lose your, you can you can fall from grace, and that you can apostatize. Well, what are the next question that needs to be asked? How is that done? Right. So. So what are the agents that are working towards that? And essentially it's, it's yourself, right? So you have warnings all throughout scripture, like you said, you know, stay fast in the faith. And I think of 1 Corinthians six specifically, where it gives out a whole list of things such as, you know, liars, fornicators, uh, adulterers, murderers, homosexuals, all of these, goes through a list and it says none of these can inherit the kingdom of God. So we see that you know, these things when left rampant put our faith in danger because that's exactly what sin does. Sin attacks our faith. So if we if we take an understanding that we're saved and we're always saved, right, and we just Give into this Epicurean sort of idea, which means just, you know, this, you know, do whatever you want. The law, the law of God doesn't matter. You can live how you please. This Epicurean sort of fulfilling your desires at all costs, no matter what it is. Right. So that puts our salvation in danger. But then also you look at Galatians 5, 4, where it says those who would be, who would, be justified by the law, have fallen from Christ, have fallen from grace and been cut off from Christ, right? That is specific language saying you're not saved. And so on one hand, we have this, do whatever you want, live how you please. And that puts your salvation in danger. But then you also have those who think that they're doing good works to keep themselves in the faith we're being justified by the law, that also puts your salvation in danger. Why? Because it takes away your faith from Christ alone and puts it into yourself. So you have on one side saying, I've got this. I've got salvation on lock. Okay. I've got this so I can do whatever I want. Okay. That's faith in yourself. Then on the other hand, I'm doing what God wants. I'm doing the law. I'm doing these works, so I must be saved. That still puts it into yourself. I think it was, man, it's either CF, I think it was Pieper, a Lutheran theologian who said that the only way to lose your salvation is through self-righteousness, which is taking faith away from Christ and putting it into yourself. Um, So that question, does grace imply works are necessary for salvation if that, if, if we can fall away? No, because that is exactly a way that we lose our salvation is by trusting in our works. So, you know, the word of God specifically assaults any kind of self-righteousness that we would have in ourselves and redirects it towards Christ. Um, So, but there is an implication when you have a doctrine of apostasy and that you can fall away, it does imply a necessity of some kind of work, but the works that are necessary are not our own, right? The works that we need are God's works. So falling away from grace implies a necessity for God's work to outperform the work my flesh and sin and the devil is doing against faith, right? It's our work, which led us apostate in the first place. If if one has gone apostate, so they can't lead us back, right? It's not by our works of the flesh, which began us in the faith to begin with, but the spirit, right? So the spirit will continue us. God's work in us will continue us. And that's Galatians 3.3. When Paul says, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So if you if if your beginning was a work of God, does that mean that your continuing is a work of yourself? No. It's it's a work of God. But this would prompt me to say, you no, know, reading Galatians 3.3, say, yeah, Paul, I am so foolish to have believed that. So Lord have mercy on me. For my own devices, you know, they leave me estranged, separate from you. So, if we believe that our works merit some form of grace to continue our faith, then what we've done is made the law our final judge. Right? So, and that's exactly what the law is. You know, it is a judge, and it should never have the final say. You know, because the law points us inward to our works, um, which will inevitably result in self righteousness. Like I said earlier, that we've either got ourselves, we've got our salvation under control, or, you know, if we're being honest, we'll know that our works actually don't measure up to to God's call for us. So, you know, our final judge should always be the gospel, you know, it should always be faith and believing that gospel. So, Falling from grace implies a necessity for faith, which bring about works, essentially. Um, and it it implies a necessity of leaning entirely on God's work alone and not our own work. Um, yeah, so I mean, for the first part of that question, I guess that would, that would be my answer. Um, a doctrine of apostasy really requires a, it, it implies a necessity for God's work to sustain us and give us the gift of perseverance and, and not, not looking to ourselves for the sustaining of faith. Wow. Yeah, that's, yes. you know,
0: and it's, 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 um, I'm actually reading through An exposition of thirty-nine articles right now uh, by an English, the an English bishop from back in like the eighteen, I think like eighteen something. Um, And I read the specific spot where he talks about the uh, falling from grace and mentions how we, the Anglican Church, ended up um, agreeing with the Augsburg Confession versus. The um, Westminster on the perseverance of the saints, Um, and a lot of the stuff you mentioned is kind of the stuff that we ended up agreeing with you guys on, or Lutheran the Lutherans on more than the Calvinists. I believe he actually mentions at the like the very end of the chapter um, that he believed that the kind of the, the the core Calvinistic reform view, the perseverance of the saints was how did he put it he kind of put like it was just like a lot it seemed like a logical conclusion oh yeah that calvin like as like they were kind of making the system that it just seemed like it just fit and so rather than doing what scripture said it was just kind of like well we'll just make scripture fit the system And, and that's kind of
1: what he feels like happened um, no, I mean that's a common critique. Um, I mean tulip in itself, you know, total depravity, unlimited atonement, or unlimited elect, unconditional election, um, limited atonement, irresistible grace, preservation of the saints. All of these are built on each other, right? So, if you don't have a perseverance of the saints like doctrine, like um Calvin laid out. Well, then that kind of undermines irresistible grace because you're resisting grace and that undermines limited atonement because now there are some who actually did have faith that have fallen away and are now damned, right? See, I mean, assuming that they don't repent, that, you know, Christ apparently died for. And in a Calvinist schema, you cannot have someone who Christ died for come to faith and then fall away. It's just, it's just not, it doesn't fit into their understanding. Um, but yeah, that's why even in the Book of Concord, one of the critiques we have against the Reformed is that they use a very magisterial use of reason, which means that um, reason is their teacher. It's their magistrate, it's their ruler and if something doesn't make sense, well, you better make it make sense or else reason's going to get upset with you. But Lutherans use a more ministerial use where we use reason as a tool. And if something doesn't fit, we tell reason to take the back seat and we, we accept the, con- the apparent contradiction. Um, so this, so that, you know, having reason as your master which the reform tend to do is why they can't they can't agree on a true apostasy mm. um, because because it just it would it would define everything else it would defile everything else in the system basically
0: right um, for the so for the second part of that question actually yeah. Um, so kind of, and I think Lutherans kind of came up with the concept of imputation, I think, if I remember my church history right.
1: So, I mean, maybe the word, but I mean, we quote several church fathers in our confession when speaking about imputation. Right, uh, right. So it definitely wasn't a foreign idea. Right.
0: Um, so then how does the... Rome, how does the Lutheran position of imputation differ from like the Roman Catholic um, version of infusion?
1: Yeah, so in, okay. So apostasy actually works a lot better under an imputation view of righteousness instead of a, instead of an infused righteousness that the Catholics have. So it's it's kind of ironic that you know the reformed and you know those non Protestants, non-Lutheran sort of agree with us that righteousness is imputed, but they deny apostasy, and the apostasy makes more sense. Than imputed righteousness. And this this is essentially because imputed righteousness is I'm a sinner and I remain a sinner, but before God, Christ has sort of covered you, right? We see we see Christ as Imputing his righteousness to us, and he sort of covers us and shields us from God's wrath. And in fact, it not only does it shield us from God's wrath, but it turns his wrath away from us. And get and it, and it makes God our friend now instead of our judge. Um. But underneath that righteousness remains a sinner, right? And this is, this is the simultaneously sinner and saint idea. that that Lutherans love to talk about, right? So underneath Christ's righteousness remains a sinner and we're sort of clothed in it, sort of like the parable of the feast when when the king kicks out the man who shows up to the wedding feast who's not wearing the right clothing. You know, that's sort of what it is for Christians. You're not wearing Christ's righteousness over you, externally to you. Then you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I and I try to explain infused righteousness and, infu- and infused grace, sort of, but instead of grace being grace and righteousness being a covering for you, righteousness and grace is sort of poured out into the heart of the believer, um in an infused righteousness sort of understanding. So the the heart and the nature of the individual actually changes it's no longer just external to the individual and it covers them but actually enters into them and changes his righteousness changes his heart um you know to become more godlike basically which is sort of like a theosis you know understanding interpretation um that man's nature ceases to be corrupt in a through sanctification and justification, it becomes more like God's nature. So apostasy doesn't make sense in that infused righteousness understanding because as you become a more mature Christian and as more grace is given to you, you should become a more like God and you, you are less likely to apostatize the further you go on in the faith. Right? The only time you would really see apostasy in this understanding is like a new convert. But with but with an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that comes and covers you, you remain a sinner underneath. And all it would take is to take that covering that's on you and cast it aside. Because you remain, uh, your nature remains depraved and totally wicked. And this sort of <clears throat> goes with the understanding of the, of the two natures that are within a Christian, right? You read Romans 7, it's very, Romans 6, 7, and 8 very much gets into how Paul's flesh, you know, the fleshly nature of man, the carnal desires that are within us remain, but there's also a new man that's raised in us through our baptism that presides in us as well. And these two are, are they're they're clashing with each other constantly so all it would take then is as paul says reap to the flesh and you'll sow the flesh right is to denounce repentance denounce faith live how you want yourself to right resist the work of god and your flesh grows so much that it sort of dwindles the spirit right and that's again that's paul's or Peter's warning when he says, do not quench the spirit, right? Do not do not, you know, deny grace and, <clears throat> and God's work in you to a point where you know, your flesh becomes so um, grand and enlarged in you that you, that you forget the work that God's even done and then you just walk away from it. it sort of reminds me of um, the parable of the prodigal son, right? This is a son who is a legitimate child of, of, you know, the father that's there. And he takes his gift and he runs off with it and he squanders it. To the point where he's eating pig slop and he's on the verge of death. Right. If the story stopped there, then that son would have died separate from the father, away from him. He would have let his own desires get the best of him. And he would have cast out that gift. And he would have died there. But then we know, you know, grace glory be to God that. The son comes back, is reunited with his father, and grace is given to him for his repentance, and he's reconciled once again, and he does not die, and he he enjoys life continued. Right, it's the same thing. We take this gift of salvation, you know, we run off and squander it. If the story stopped there, and we persist in our stubbornness and our sin and our in un- our unbelief, we'd cat we we would just, you know make a martyr of the new man within us but then we are drawn back you know primarily by these words in the in the in the in the scriptures that that tell us that warn us of this right the law brings us back in fear and trembling and then when we're shown the gospel again we will believe and we remember our baptism and our sins are as, as if they were washed away again and you know the spirit is just it is just magnified in you to the point where you are back into a state of grace basically so you know that sort of clashing of the natures one's trying to kick out the other you don't really have that in an infused righteousness sense when your nature becomes mixed with grace and righteousness um, to the point where apostasy seems, you know, unfathomable to some of the more mature Christians.
0: Hmm. <clears throat> okay, and I, I, kind of like a sub part of that question, I did want to ask, um, mostly for Anglo Catholics, because I've heard some Anglo Catholics make this point. Um, in defensive and views because a lot of them are more Roman Catholic than actual Anglican. Yeah. Um but they'll they would say that the Lutheran view kind of the model, I think Luther put it like I'm um, like a like he was like a heap of dung covered by like God who's like white as snow or something like that. I can't remember the exact analogy Luther used. Mm-hmm. Um
1: Sounds- they bring Sounds
0: like something you'd say. Yeah, yeah. Um, But kind of, they bring up that, like, when, at the end of, like, when you die, and this is kind of what they use as an advocation of purgatory as well, they say, well, if you die and you, and you yourself are still, you know, kind of that dung heap or that sinner, then if the righteousness isn't infused in you, then you... The idea that you could just die and then be in the presence of God doesn't make sense. And so they'll say that it makes sense that you would have to go to kind of a after-death purification to still fix the problem of you yourself being a sinner. So how does, what would be, I don't know, that wasn't a planned question, but just kind of if you could. yeah.
1: Um Touch on that a little bit, so, I mean, the thing with infused right- infused righteousness is it's to us it's just it's it's jumping the gun. It's claiming something that's promised for us too soon, right? We those those who hold to an imputed righteousness, we understand that right, in the new creation, in the resurrection of our bodies, right? God's righteousness will be our active righteousness. It will be infused into us and there will be no sin in our flesh, right? But that's a promise, you know, far off. That is that is that is not yet come to fulfillment. So while now, I mean, like I said, Romans 6, 7, and 8, when Paul's talking about the flesh and it's constantly battling against the spirit, you know, this sort of battle is one that's continued throughout the Christian life. And the thing is, it is it is the flesh. It is our fleshly nature. But we understand that once this flesh is gone, it is passed from us, and we depart, our, you know, our souls depart from our bodies, then that part of us remains in the grave. It remains dead and does not live on. So I think I think the um, the confusion with people who hold to a purgatory sort of understanding of a cleansing after death is that they think that you hold on to that sin nature when you're dead, right? So mm. Lutheran, we'd say that no, when you die, this is shed off of you, it's gone. So now all that remains is the new man that christ has that Christ has raised in you in your baptism. And to say that that's not holy enough to be in the presence of God immediately, well, then you have to question the work of Christ. Mm.
0: That's actually the best explanation that's I've is. heard because I, I I've actually been trying to look up that more.
1: So that was was very good. That's that's I I didn't even think about that. Yeah, some Catholics I've heard you know believe in a quote unquote instant purgatory where when you die, you're purified right instantly, and then you go into the presence of God, which is not purgatory, right? That's not the classical understanding of what purgatory was. Um, but I mean, if you're a Catholic and you believe that right when you die, you are you are. Purged of your sin nature, and all that remains, the new man, um, that Christ raised in your baptism. Well, then you're a Protestant. So, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, so, uh, actually, speaking of the cross too. So then, how does Jesus's death on the cross justify us? Which you kind of already answered a little bit, but. Would be kind yeah, of classical. I'm, I'm sorry.
1: I can go more into
0: it. Yeah. Uh, oh.
1: So I think the I'm going to compare this with the uh, with sort of the Presbyterian and tulip Christians' understanding of how the cross justifies. Right. So they have the understanding that Christ, you know, with limited atonement, Christ died for. For the elect, basically. And that, you know, anyone who Christ died for cannot fall away, period. Because, well, then that would just be a failure of God. So in their, like, order of decrees, they say that, you know, God first decided who is and who is not the elect. And then second, that Christ will die for those people. Lutherans would say, that the cross was first ordained by God, right? So the cross, Christ's atonement on the cross, his punishment for my glory, his, his punishment for my sin, which results in my glory, that is first decided for the entire world, for, for all of mankind. And then God decides, you know, who will receive that? And ultimately, it's for all. <clears throat> so to say that someone cannot fall away, to say that someone can fall away from grace, is it doesn't contradict our understanding of the atonement on the cross and justification. Because if Christ died for the whole world, and you partake in that forgiveness for a time, fall away and come back, well, guess what? Christ still died for the world. You're still a part of the world. You can still be justified by Christ's death. So our sort of universal atonement is, it it backs up our our understanding of an apostasy. Whereas, you know, if you have an apostate somehow in a Calvinist tradition well, there's no assurance that, they, that Christ actually died for you. So how are you going to come back, right? Someone who Christ died for would never, would never apostatize. They'd never do that. So the cross justifies us on a grand universal scale. And then we partake in that, right? We are, we're brought into that forgiveness. And, you know, that is something that we experience. It's not something that's decided for us. Um, But it's something that is experienced in time and space. And that justification is, you know, um, that justification is for us, to us. And we can have assurance in that, right? We can have assurance that the cross is for us. And yeah. Hmm. So how does the Book of Concord form this doctrine? So, I mean, we talk about it mostly you'd have to look at sections pertaining to the elect, right? Because we don't actually have articles on apostasy, basically. But we do talk about it in sections about the elect, who who, and what the church is, um, But basically how they framed it was what I described in the beginning that, you know, you know, you can be regenerate and still fall away. um, In the sense that not all the elect will receive, you know, be joined to Christ. I mean, one of the things that sort of stuck out to me while reading the Book of Concord is when they're talking about this. The reason you can go from being in a state of grace to out of a state of grace, and it can still not put any blame on God's part, is that we are we, ha- we have been saved at our baptism, we are being saved in this moment, and we will eventually be saved when at Christ's return. Right. And it was the book of Concord first. That like introduced me to that idea because you know we think of salvation as a one-time event and certainly there is a justification at a certain point in time but there's also you know Christ continuing to justify us not because we lost it we're continually losing it but because God's grace is so overabundant and so um necessary for us that you know we are continuing to be saved continuing to be justified that's what Paul says i quoted this earlier in the first couple of verses of first corinthians 15 you know he says i let me remind you of the gospel that you are being saved right paul talks about our salvation in a sense where we are you know not only saved once, but we are saved in this moment. And in the next moment, we're continuing to persevere and persevere. And that is why, you know, in this life between, you know, our death or Christ's return, we can go out of the state of grace, but then return back into it because that is just our continuing of salvation towards the final salvation, which there is no, you know, getting out of.
0: Okay. Um, so the next question I have, I'm going to modify it a little bit because you kind of already answered that, um, but I would, I think I'll modify it and say instead um, with, in the United States particularly, and in kind of just Western, Western thought, like you mentioned kind of in the beginning, unless you're really Lutheran or Anglican or Roman Catholic or Orthodox, um, this theology doesn't really ever get touched. Um, it's kind of just viewed as something that was abandoned at the Reformation, and that's just under and we never look at it again. <clears throat> so... For people who are coming out of non-denominational traditions, Presbyterian traditions, you know, the kind of the ones that hold to the perseverance of the saints and the or the once saved, always saved, both variants, um how would you say is the best way for that Christian coming out of those traditions for them to kind of reconcile and wrestle with? These different doctrines that, to most of them, probably sound very just Catholic or I'll <laughs> say Roman Catholic.
1: Yeah. Um, I say, don't don't be afraid of first something that challenges your indoctrination, basically, and second, don't be afraid if it's too Catholic sounding right? That's the big error of these radical reformers, is that it less becomes about something about doctrinal purity, about what does scripture say? What is the truth? And it's become something like, okay, the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. How do we be as different from them as possible? And that is just, a, a horrible, a horrible way to go about things. Um, now I understand that that's not always the case, and that a lot of reformed you know, lean on scripture um, more than more than most of us. Um, but essentially, you know my advice would be just because it's something that the Roman Catholics also share with us in their beliefs, you know, don't write it off for that reason, right? Trust in what scripture says alone. Uh, My third tip would uh, make reason your servant and your tool instead of your master. If it doesn't make sense, if, if something in scripture is not making sense to you, don't try to come up with excuses to make it make sense, right? So if scripture is telling you that you can Fall away from the faith, but it's also telling you that God will persevere you to the end. Well, don't throw out one of those for the other. That's really, <clears throat> that's where the contention and and this is the theological word, the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologian, is holding the is hold, bearing the cross, bearing the burden of these contradictions, and not throwing out one piece of scripture for the other right That's what the Armenians do in this in this conversation where they take um, they say, you know, yes you can fall away from grace. why can you do that? because well if you know, <clears throat> you know if, if you're the one who's making yourself persevere, you're doing this synergistically you're working with god to make yourself persevere then you not working hard enough is the reason that you that you did not persevere right that's the arminian sort of understanding and then the calvinist understanding is well god is working to persevere you so that means you can't fall away period so <laughs> you know they throw out one to make the other one make sense but that's not the entirety of the scriptural confessions so you know if something doesn't make sense just obviously continue to do research and continue to learn but ultimately you know obviously i'm, I'm biased but i can there isn't an answer for these things you know why do some persevere and, and some do not um and the ultimate answer is we're not told or why do some if if god is the one persevering us then then how is it possible that we fall away well there isn't an answer in in scripture here so you know be content to hold these things in contention
0: okay, okay. Um, wow, yeah, that's that's very good, and I would just also throw in too just um, not to feel like you have to make a decision immediately, um, because the Bible isn't really something that you could just kind of like fat, like you know, just look and be like, oh, there's the answer, and then you like close the book, yeah, <laughs> it takes more than a Google search, yeah oh so this yeah. like specifically something that's like a problem I, I i say like take a longer with that honestly um and so the last question i have is this is also something that's kind of was big for me not this problem but it was presented to me as a problem um by many people in the baptist world who i had to kind of wrestle with as I was leaving, because they were, you know, trying to keep me back like a, like a, um, what was their names, obstinate and uh, pliable in the Pilgrim's Progress, not not to insult them, but uh, it's kind of what they were doing. Um, But they would kind of, they wouldn't even really bring it up as like a scriptural problem, but they would say, you know, well, you know, how do you have assurance, you know, well if you're just sitting around worrying all the time, that you know, you just, you know, that you're not saved, and that da die, you know, basically, God doesn't want you to just sit there and be worried all the time, and to not be sure that you're actually saved, and all this stuff, so the only way to actually have that assurance is for it to be, you know, a Calvinistic, or, you know, evangelical version of, um of uh, grace. So is falling away something that the average Christian should always be worried about in the um in this model?
1: Or is it not Yeah, so it's as someone who believes that apostasy exists, that someone can fall away from grace, I can tell you from personal experience that I'm not constantly biting my nails and ripping out my hair. Absolutely terrified that I'm never, you know, that I'm not a Christian today when I was yesterday, you know, and that's what I tried to point out in the beginning of this and defining what we mean by this is it's not just something that happens or that you sin too much and that it happens, right? Something very important to remember is that Christ is a better savior than you are a sinner, right? So it's not an issue of sinning too much and you are unforgivable, right? It's, it's, it's an issue of willful rejecting of grace and of Christ and of, and of turning away from him. Now, what I can say is that an understanding of apostasy has actually, in some way, given me more assurance and given me more of a gratitude and 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 love for God's work that he does right it, it's made me 10 times more um thankful for God's gift of perseverance it makes me 10 times more thankful um, that he is faithful when I am faithless and that he is faithful to call me back to repentance. And that he is the one holding my salvation in his hands right and right so it actually gives me a a greater you know gratitude for for that gift of perseverance for the gift of faith so you know the question should it this something that should this be something that we're worried about constantly no if i were to say if i were to say yes well, then I'd be telling you to worry. And that's exactly what Christ tells us not to do, right? He says, do not worry for tomorrow. And in that context of of when Jesus says that, he's talking about physical providence. You know, don't be worried about the food that you eat, whether or not you'll be clothed, whether or not you'll have a place to lay your head, right? But also in a spiritual sense, do not be worried for tomorrow. And take every moment as it comes, right? Because that is where, you know, taking you out of reality and into a distant future of of unknowns is, is where the devil will just absolutely rip you apart. So right now, believe, right? Right now, have faith right now. Hear the words of Christ's forgiveness, and of his, of his incarnation, and the and the work that you know, God becoming man, came and, you know, was washed in your sin, in the Jordan River, and carried that sin to the cross, and died in your place for it. Right. Remember that in this moment. Right. And then, if need be, in the next moment, do it again. In the next moment. Do it again, right? We don't really get a time where we can sit back and just like, you know. Let grace abound. Yeah, let grace abound, exactly. <laughs> There's like, and this is the cross of the Christian. Is, is repenting of a sin. And that repentance is, you know, being contrite over your sin, being sorrowful, and realizing that you are under the law and that you are worthy of condemnation but then you finish your repentance by believing that that condemnation is taken onto Christ and that you are free from it and that you're forgiven. And this is why Luther describes the Christian life as one of repentance every day. And this is also why Luther says that everyone should be hearing the law and the gospel every day, because every day we forget that we're sinners and every day we forget how gracious and good God is. So, you know, this is this is this is one of the reasons why lutheranism was so appealing to me is because it's just so grounded in reality it's so grounded in the everyday life right so this sort of just being present in your faith and understanding that right now i'm saved and i do have the promise that god will persevere me right he makes he is the one who continues a good work in you as Philippians says he who has who has started a good work in you will see it through to the end right and that is ultimately I think that's the highest form of, of of faith is to say if I leave it up to myself and I try to do this on my own I'm going to die eternally basically but I look outside of myself to Christ constantly There's never a time where we get to not do that. And that is where we find our assurance. But also it's it's ironic because you said that like, it's mostly like Baptists and like, who are trying to keep you from, you know, accepting this and everything. I'm guessing they're like low church sort of evangelicals. So like, it's ironic because These are usually the people who see the sacraments, right? And these gifts that God give us for our assurance as just reminders of Jesus or things that Jesus told us to do or reminders of what Jesus did, right? So how can I, it doesn't, it baffles me how they can sit there and refuse to believe and acknowledge the gifts of the sacraments which are the means God uses to strengthen and sustain our faith and to keep us from falling away. But then still blame God for being unfaithful to us, right? Because that's that's kind of their their contradict that's kind of their contention is oh well God wouldn't cast you out, He wouldn't do that right Oh what so God God didn't fulfill his promise to you right that like that's their critique. Meanwhile, <laughs> they're not even, they don't even accept the sacraments, right? They don't even accept the, the things that God gives us for our assurance. Mm. So it's, yeah. not like, it's not like God has left us completely defenseless, right? We have our baptism to remember. And we have the promises that our sins have been washed away in our baptism. We receive Christ's body and blood, you know, hopefully weekly, depending on where you go. Right and, and and in his body and blood there's forgiveness. We have confession. Right, that's confession for me. I went to my first confession probably about a month ago. It is like an astounding thing, and it's and it's so, you know, such a great gift and tool that God has given us for our perseverance. That you know, we don't don't even deserve these things, but he gives them to us anyways. So really, he gives us these things. Most people reject them. Most people just say baptism doesn't do anything. The sacraments don't do anything. So, I mean, really, the fault is on your part if you're not going to take advantage of the things God has given us.
0: Wow. I I I agree. I definitely, and, and, you know, the more I hear you talk, the more I'm very glad that the um, College of Bishops in England decided to listen, to, to take the side of the Lutherans on the mainland yeah. um, more, just because I, I, I kind of get what you mean, also when you talk about like how Lutheranism, you say it feels grounded, it that is definitely something Anglican borrowed borrow too because you know in our book of common prayer you know we have our confession and we have our scripture and like our doctrines it is very rooted in reality um you know just even though like, the language of the prayers are just very much so um mm-hmm. you know praising god for who he is and his incredible majesty recognizing that we are like abraham said you know you're nothing but ashes and dust And then making our humble requests and begging for mercy, you know, it is just, it's ah, it's fulfilling, and it sounds depressing, you know that that to a, it most looks like an evangelical where I came out of. That sounds so sad and depressing, and and you know, not you know, God showering me and abundance of love but really it is God showing me an abundance of
1: love yeah, it's, if, it's... If you would if you leave it at you know crying out for mercy and God please forgive me I'm a poor miserable sinner and I deserve your eternal and temporal punishment right if we mm-hmm. leave it at that it is depressing but <laughs> <laughs> we never do right? right we always hear yes you are forgiven um you hear the gospel continually and we and we return thanks for that
0: amen to that well thank but thank you uh for coming on too it was it was a great conversation like i said if it wasn't for apostolic succession i'd probably be lutheran right now oh man Um, we
1: can have a conversation (laughs) about what that is
0: (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah, and it'd be great to definitely get you back on at some point, because I'm, I'm sure I can I have more stuff to pick your brain on. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, also, just um, for people who are like wanting to look into Lutheranism, what are some good sources that you would just kind of throw to them? Or um, I don't know what you guys call them, if they're called like
1: synods or like which groups. oh yeah so so i'm a part of the lcms which is the lutheran churches of the missouri synod i would suggest the aalc which is the american association of lutheran churches they're in full communion with lcms we basically believe the same thing we're just one is smaller than the other um then the the wisconsin evangelical lutheran synod i think the wels um Mm -hmm. Those are the scripturally grounded ones that I can think of off the top of my head um, in America. I can't speak to other countries, but um, but I would also point to, if you're more like, if you're more of a theology nerd, just pick up the Book of Concord. It lays out everything Lutherans believe. Um, we have our Lutheran superstars such as Jordan B. Cooper on YouTube, He's got a podcast, Satan Sinner. Um, got Brian Wolf Mueller on YouTube, Chris Rosebro on YouTube, and his website, Kongsfinger. Um, well, that's his church. Just look up Kongsfinger.com. Um, yeah, I mean, those are probably, those are probably the people I'd point you to, especially Brian Wolf Mueller. He really puts things into a like layman perspective, and that is easy to understand. It's communicated very clearly.
0: Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well,
1: thank you. Um,
0: hopefully, people who listen to this will take advantage of that if they're looking at um, Lutheranism. Um, we'll try to have you on it again at some point. We can coordinate that. But until then, thank you so much for coming on and um,
1: entertaining my questions. Of course, if you don't mind, I'd just like to end with this quick passage from Jude kind of pertinent to our, to our conversation. Um, So this is Jude instructing uh, the church or <clears throat> yeah, the church that he's writing to. So have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire to others. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, which fun fact The Greek word for that is apostasia, to keep you from apostasizing and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. For the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thank you all for tuning into this
0: episode of Catacomb Theology. We hope you enjoyed it. And tune in with us next week to continue in our series with J.I. Packer in his book, The Heritage of Anglican Theology. Until then, God bless and have a wonderful rest of your week.